Good morning, Central Family. It seems there's so much maintenance to be done these days. Let me get rid of this mask first. You know, I have to take my glasses off to let them defog. Friends, I, oh, I need to tell you that um, this morning's time of worship has been such a blessing to me. I didn't realize how impoverished my heart was until I got around these instrumentalists and these singers, these musicians, um, just kind of cracked me right open and uh, helped me worship this morning in an amazing way that I really desperately needed to. Uh, so thank you uh, to you all. I have a slew of other thank yous. I, I bring you greetings from, of course, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and on behalf of missionaries around the globe, um, I thank you for your partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is your giving and your going and your serving, your praying that help ensure that we accomplish our mission as well. But I also wanna thank you this morning for just being a good church. Number one, you do blended worship better than any church I know. Um, but uh, also I want to thank you for, for being a home for my friend Sonny and for welcoming him and, and embracing him and his own call to ministry among us. And I want to thank you for making space for your pastor to recuperate and have some time away. I speak with pastors all week long, and it's a tough, tough time. So thank you for helping Wade's endurance and faithfulness. And then, of course, I want to thank you for empowering two women. I missed the ordination service, but I did have the opportunity to serve on their ordination council several weeks ago as I was traveling back from preaching in Tullahoma. I actually had to stop in Chattanooga and find a Wi-Fi signal so I could have my first ever Zoom ordination council. But I was unable to be here for the actual ordination. Thank you for recognizing the gifts in Miss Joyce and in Becca and affirming those gifts. So our scripture this morning is found in the first gospel, uh, Matthew, uh, chapter 9, verses 35 is where we'll begin. And we'll go through chapter 10, verse 8. If you are the kind who likes to vet the preacher with the open Bible in your lap, which I always encourage you to do, then find your spot and hear these words. Just before we get to this passage, we see Jesus having been on the Sermon on the Mount and delivering the core of Christian teaching. If there's anything worthy of our memorizing in Scripture, it is those two chapters three chapters, five through seven. And as soon as he comes off the mountain, he's engaged in really intensive ministry, going from one town to the next. And everywhere he goes, notice this, of all of the healings in chapters eight and nine, Jesus is restoring people to wholeness and relationship wherever he goes. And an attempt to explain how it is that Jesus cast out a demon, the Pharisees around him explained that he casts out demons because he is the prince of demons. And that's where we pick up in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, 
he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. If you are a fan of the NBC Evening News, I have become. There is a spot on the end of the news segment called There's Good News Tonight. And boy, don't we need a news production that has some good news tonight. Lester Holtz on September 23rd shared a story in this time of good news tonight about a farmer close to the Canadian border and far out west, who just as his harvest was ready to be brought in, suffered a massive heart attack. In the town, folks became aware of his heart attack and his need, and in a matter of hours, as the story goes, the town came together, all of the farmers who had been working on their harvest, before you knew it, there was an army of harvesters and combines and all kinds of farm equipment descending upon this man's farm. And in a matter of just 24 hours, they had brought in the entire harvest. They had seen that this gentleman was helpless, and they responded. Now, there's a difference between compassion and a difference between empathy. Empathy really would have looked like in town the folks recognizing that this gentleman needed some help and being moved perhaps in their heart to simply say, oh, well, that's, that's too bad. I feel for him. Hope things work out for y'all. But compassion, on the other hand, is a very different animal. Compassion pays deep attention to that dissonance within. And it is not satisfied until something is done about the problem. Compassion drives us to not only see the helpless and the harassed, 
but to actually do something about their condition as much as we can do. Jesus was one of those people who couldn't help but see the harassed and helpless. And in Jesus' day, they were everywhere, it seems. Even when they didn't approach, he could see them and tell their need. He knew their need before he even approached. And this didn't sit too well with a group of folks. You see, the story that is kind of the outer shell of the story that we have this morning is that in Matthew's gospel, there are these antagonists. Jesus has laid out his vision for the kingdom of God on earth and has invited us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But this vision, this prayer, this idea is a threat to those in power. And Matthew, though he doesn't name names, certainly points to groups. And in the Gospel of Matthew, one or two of those groups that are most prominent are the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, it's easy and often done that we can just throw the Pharisees under the bus. We need to stop this morning and say, Pharisees did some really great things. That whole affirmation of the resurrection that we just saw up here, that's actually their idea. They actually discerned that from Scripture. And this thing that we're doing now, gathering as a local church, well, they were pretty much the foundation of the Jewish synagogue, which is our predecessor to gathering weekly as we do. So there's a lot of good about the Pharisee movements from about 500 B.C. to about 150 A.D. But in Jesus' time, in this window, the Pharisees, their culture, the way they did things, the way they thought, it seemed to just drift and seemed to have gone to pot. Jesus describes these particular Pharisees, if you have your copy of the Scripture, in chapter 23, in the first few verses, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, do what they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with the respect in the marketplace. They want to be called rabbi. They dress in ostentatious ways to draw attention to themselves, all the while unable to see the harassed, and the helpless. Clearly, as learners and teachers, these Pharisees and scribes, they had been called to shepherd God's people, Israel. They knew better than anyone else that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. They knew as well as anyone that 
Man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But they were more faithful to tradition, more faithful to the law than to the sheep they were called to shepherd. According to the juxtaposition that Matthew sets up the Pharisees, unlike Jesus, they did not see, they could not see the harassed and the helpless. Even worse, there's evidence to suggest that they contributed to their harassment and to their helplessness. It's difficult assessing the scribes and the Pharisees without implicating ourselves, who among us isn't threatened by Jesus' vision as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. I know I am. There is that little piece in 633 where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all this other stuff. It'll take care of itself. Trust me, but I find myself consistently asking just how well do I trust Jesus along this way? How like a Pharisee am I? Oftentimes, this conversation happens in my head and my heart when I'm at a stoplight, actually, usually when I'm right up against a car whose license plate has those four words that are so ubiquitous in our society, in God we trust. I'm mindful of how blasphemous it seems in light of our behavior and the behavior of our leaders to even say or to claim such a thing. In what way does our behavior actually indicate that we trust in God? For one reason or another, you've probably noticed that individuals and institutions especially tend to drift toward Phariseeism over time. The scribes and the Pharisees, they model this well for us. It's one fine reason for us to keep on reading the Gospels and bearing down on them. No matter how much we attempt to form communities in the image of Jesus that are outward focused, that look for the helpless and look for the harassed, it seems we are in constant need of redemption when it comes to a life together that sees those folks. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. A wise man once told me that the best laid plans still require the Lord's redemption. The scribes and the Pharisees seem to have forgotten that. Have we? But God, isn't that the best phrase? But God. But God shows up as God does in amazing ways in this passage. He provides. But God had another plan, a plan to reach the harassed and helpless. Has it ever occurred to you that God must have a lot of tentative plans? If God trusts in us at all, he's just waiting to see about our faithfulness. And when the inevitable failing comes, there seems always to be another plan. God shows up here. Note the pivot in the text in chapter 10. Jesus has just 
walked these disciples through all of Galilee, through all the towns. He sat in the synagogues. He's shown them how to relate to the Pharisees. He's shown them how to proclaim the kingdom and how to heal what ministry to the harassed and helpless looks like. And then he pivots. He has embodied for them what compassion looks like, but then he pivots. He says... The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers. To send workers. He makes them aware of the need and then asks them to pray. This this whole interchange with Jesus reminds me of a pastor that I knew several years ago in a very funny way. When he would ask church members if they would consider service in some capacity within the congregation, the church member would often say, well, thank you, pastor. I'm going to have to pray about that, to which the pastor would respond, well, why don't we pray right now? Why don't we pray right now and get that over with? And we can find out right now whether or not God's called you to this thing. These disciples have been asked to pray for workers to be sent into the harvest, and now all of a sudden in their praying, they realize, in fact, they are the workers. They are the leader that they have been waiting for, those who can embody a trust in God. Some have been with him since chapter 5. Others have joined more recently, like Matthew himself. But all likely know by now Jesus' take on things. They have a sense of his vision for the world. They have a sense of his mission to achieve that vision and his strategy for achieving the mission. They know who he is at this point, and they know how to see and to help the harassed and the helpless. The question is, how good are their eyes? Jesus calls them to see. And are they willing to sacrifice tradition and institutionalization as they know it to reach the harassed and the helpless? Will they lay aside their judgments long enough to hear the stories of the harassed and the helpless? And for how long, how long before they too, like the Pharisees, like you and me, are in need of some redemptive correction? Inquiring minds want to know as we read through Matthew. And we kind of do too. For now, Jesus says, according to Matthew 10, 25, for right now, it's enough. It is sufficient that the disciple is like the master. That these apprentices are like the Jedi. That they bear some resemblance to his character and his spirit and his willingness to do and to be. These disciples, they're still becoming like Christ. But if nothing else, They can proclaim the good news even as they're learning to live into it. And friends, it's really important here that we pay attention to exactly what Jesus says is the good news because inevitably we'll want to complicate it for a whole host of others 
So listen carefully. This is the good news. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is accessible. The kingdom is in our midst. It's not some far off pie in the sky, by and by place. It is accessible to you and me and anyone who's willing to gather in Jesus' name and to bring it into being, to get out of the way, to let it happen. No scribal hoops, no pharisaical barriers. Now, if you want to join a church, that could be a different story. In my last pastorate, there was a small group of older ladies who gathered weekly in one of those really large Sunday school spaces on the third floor, one of those spaces that used to be used in the 50s and 60s and maybe even in the 70s as kind of like an opening assembly, and then Sunday school classrooms would split off. They'd been meeting for decades, these ladies, and across this broad space, they had these quilting-type things that they worked on small quilts. Each one had their own, and there was room enough for six or seven of these ladies in the room. Their little group was called Hearts and Hands. There was an older lady who I came to love dearly. Her name was Velma Darnell. She kind of seemed sort of to be in charge of this group. She kind of seemed to, one, to be the one who had the kingdom vision that brought them together and kept them climbing the stairs to the third floor to use this space that would accommodate them so well. About two months into my pastorate, it occurred to me that, you know, politically, it's probably really good for me to go visit with these folks find out about their ministry, spend some time with them, ask them about hearts and hands, get a real sense of what their reach is. So one day I trudged up the stairs as I knew they were gathering and I came into their space and they were so hospitable. I began to ask them to tell me the story of their ministry, this hearts and hands ministry. And I discovered that they were ministering to people that didn't get a whole lot of profile in our community, namely incarcerated women and single, often never wed mothers. They were making them quilts, quilts that they had prayed over and with each stitch offered an incredible prayer for these folks to come into the kingdom of God for them to know of God's love for them. With each stitch, as they gathered each week, they would pray together as they were working on these quilts together, and they had lists of folks who had received these quilts. They prayed for them by name. They looked beyond the facade of our society, really, and saw the deeper needs, those whom the Pharisees wouldn't touch, those who were harassed and helpless. I asked the group, so what's with the name Hearts and Hands? And I'll never forget the response, almost as in unison, as if they used this slogan often. They responded, 
If the heart's not there, the hands don't matter. If the heart's not there, the hands don't matter. As if to say the heart allows the hands to see and makes the ministry effective in the name and the spirit of Jesus. Central Bearden, you know this well. If the heart's not there, the hands don't matter. They're ineffective without the heart. I know that you know this well because my organization each year collects the volunteer state mission offering. That offering benefits a plethora of ministries all across Tennessee. Three of those ministries are in East Tennessee, and two of those ministries were born out of this church. This year, more than half of that volunteer state mission offering will go to Samaritan Ministry and to Welcome House Knoxville. It's almost four years. I think that's Cindy with a mask on right there. Uh, it occurred to me this morning, I think it's been four years since Cindy talked my ears off outside the doors here, telling me in about 10 minutes right before worship her entire testimony and what God was calling her to do, that she had seen the harassed and the helpless and that she was compelled in compassion to do something about it. As the director of a missions organization, that's, those are the people I want to talk to. How can we empower you to answer your calling? Those are the people I want to talk to. So if this is the case, then you guys must be doing something right, right? There must be something in the DNA of this church that seeks to bring the kingdom and to proclaim its nearness and its availability and its accessibility because these ministries are born from this very place. Yeah, I think Central Baptist Bearden gets it. But we're always in need of a reminder, it seems, which leads me to this morning's invitation. There's good news this morning. Contrary to the messaging of the Pharisees who make it difficult to get into the kingdom, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to say this prayer. Contrary to the messaging of the Pharisees, the kingdom is available to you as it is available to me. Despite our sinful past, Despite our tainted future, and despite any future struggle, friends, because we serve a risen Savior who's in the world today, even if he's at times shut out of the church, because of those things, we, you and me, have eternal access to the kingdom and the love of God. Not only us, but the harassed and the helpless. And what's more, what seems to be incredibly gracious of God, because God knows me and God knows you. God knows, God knows you. God knows me. God's mission 
to reconcile and renew all things. It includes you and me. And so God invites us to see, to pray about the harvest and to recognize that we are the leaders that we've been waiting for. Listen to this group. Look at them. They're ragtag bunch. They're not Pharisees. They're not as learned as the Pharisees. They're not as experienced as the Pharisees. You look at this list, and the very first one on here is going to deny the Lord three times. The last one on the list is going to betray the Lord. Within the group, you have a Roman tax collector, and you have a zealot who's advocating for the overthrow of the Roman government. Could this group be more deplorable? Do you see yourself between the semicolons and the commas in there? Where do you fit? God's mission to reconcile and renew all things, friends, it includes you and me. Would you pray with me? Lord of the harvest, we love you. We love you because you have seen us. At one point, we were harassed and helpless, and you saw us. And through your spirit, you spoke to our heart, and you invited us into the kingdom. And God, now you call us to embody the kingdom. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for seeing us. Lord, help us by your spirit to grow in likeness to your son, our brother, Jesus. Lord, yes, it is enough for the apprentice to be like the master, but Lord, help us become as he is. Though adopted, grant us his eyes and his heart and grant us, Lord, the courage and the compassion to walk in his way. Amen. Friends, in this time of singing, you are given the opportunity to respond this morning. I'm told that on the flanks of the platform here, there will be a staff minister should you need to speak with one. Whatever the Spirit calls you to do this morning, I invite you to respond in this time and to commit, to commit in Jesus' name.